Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. We come from a long teaching, a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. Some feel in every being. Let us honor our heritage by turning to the person to your right and left and greeting the holy within them this morning. Let us say together the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Morning. I'm Marcia Sharp, your lay leader this morning. Our call to worship is from Naomi Munawira from What Lies Between Us. In Sri Lanka, when two strangers meet, they ask a series of questions that reveal family, ancestral village, and blood ties until they arrive at a common friend or relative. Then they say, These are our people, so you are our people. It's a small place. Everyone knows everyone. So in this room sit people of all religious backgrounds and many different religious practices. We've got ex-Catholics, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, We've got pagans, Buddhists, Jews, we've got everybody, all in a Unitarian Universalist big tent. What holds us together? One of the things that holds this congregation is its mission statement. We wrote it on the wall, we say it every Sunday, and we revisit it every seven years because it is a growing thing. We gather in community to nourish souls transform lives, and do justice. We think about ways we can support this church that is our church community all year round, but during this season, we're asking each other for money, so it's pretty intense. Everybody gets contacted and gets to meet a charming and friendly canvasser who is another member of the congregation, and we talk about the church what's going well, what's not going so well, and what kind of financial commitment we're making. During this season, we ask a member to come and talk about this church, what it means to them, and why they support the church financially. Several years ago, Brendan Stern and his family did one of these testimonials by video because they were living in London at the time, but they're back. Good morning. I'm Brendan Stern, and along with my wife, Valerie, we've been members here at the church for about nine years. Um, I was born and raised in Canada, didn't go to a church at all when I was a child. On Sundays, we went skiing. Um, Valerie and I discovered the church by accident about a decade ago. Um, When we joined, we started up the young adults group. It wasn't running at the time. Um, and We ran that for a couple of years, and over time, we became more involved with the church. Uh, Valerie used to organize the story for all ages, and I've had the privilege of serving on the board of trustees um, and to co-chair the capital campaign with Ann Edwards, uh, where we raised $3 million to upgrade our facilities. 
Um, we participate in this church because we absolutely love it. We believe very strongly that the world needs this church and about a million more like it. I remember in a sermon here long ago, and I can't remember if it was Meg or someone else, um, who said that to do church, you need to show up. You need to come to church on Sunday. You need to participate in the life of the church because church is a contact sport, meaning we need to be in contact with each other. Our mission starts with we gather in community for a reason. We are not the loose affiliation of outraged people on Facebook, although we do a lot of that too. So my family and I come to church every Sunday, typically for late service. Some Sundays when we walk into the church, we are strong, and some Sundays when we walk into the church, we are weak. When I'm feeling weak, I know this church is here to comfort me. When our kids were born, people from this church came to our house and delivered food for a month, which was a great help. When I'm feeling down about my parenting skills, somehow Meg manages to lift me up through her sermons. When the big rains came to Austin a little while ago and the creek behind our house was overflowing its banks, our whole family, including the dogs, got in the car and we drove to the Stimmels, who are members of the church and live not too far from us, and they received us in until we were sure that our house was okay. Um, And this month, when we got some heartbreaking news uh, that Valerie's mom's breast cancer had spread to her brain, lots of members of this community reached out to us and asked, what can they do to help out? So we know that this community is here for us in times of need, and we're very thankful for it. When we're feeling strong, this church is here to give us a kick in the butt and tell us to go do some justice. The world is an amazing and perplexing place. It can be full of joy and laughter and wonder, and it can also be hurtful, cruel, and prejudiced, and we know it's not fair, and we know justice doesn't happen by accident. The recent progress on marriage equality didn't happen by accident. Lots of people worked hard, raised their voices, made a ruckus in public places, started conversations, cared for people, provided sanctuary, People in this church do those kinds of things. The kind of people that I admire in this world just so happen to gather here every Sunday. So my family participates. We march with the church, whether it's down to the Capitol to watch a same-sex marriage as Meg officiates, or with members of this church at a Black Lives Matters rally. My children are part of the RE program, and we treasure that. We We volunteer in the classrooms. And we participate in the stewardship campaign. And we also pledge to the church. We pledge something that feels substantial to us, that requires us to talk and to budget and look at our spending each month. Um, We do that because it makes us feel good, because we believe we're living out our values. Um, And we like doing our part to support this church. So the stewardship campaign is almost over. I want to thank everyone who's already pledged. I want to encourage those who haven't pledged to go ahead and do so. There's a table in the gallery where they will be happy to take your money. Thank you. Our reading this morning is by C.S. Lewis. Human beings look separate because you see them walking about separately. But then we are so made that we can see only the present moment. If we could see the past, then of course it would look different. For there was a time when every man was part of his mother and, earlier still, part of his father as well, and when they were part of his grandparents. If you could see humanity spread out in time, 
as God sees it, it would look like one single growing thing, rather like a very complicated tree. Every individual would appear connected with every other. This is the time in our service when we breathe together in an attitude of prayer and meditation. I will read a prayer written by a colleague of mine, Maureen Kiloran, and then in the time of silence, I would like to invite you to say into this space the names of some of the people that you have lost in your life who feel like ancestors to you as a way of inviting them here to sit with us for a time. Let us pray. Holy grandparents of the universe, energies of creation, endless mysteries of life, you are the music that sounded before our world was born, sound and silence woven throughout the ages. Far beyond the most profound wisdom humanity has been able to touch. Be with us. Deepen our willingness to live without certainty, to take the risks of living on the edges of our creativity, to step beyond the boundaries of possibility and hope. Help us always to remember that we are, in our essence, the magic of star stuff, that we are kin to all that is and was and may yet come to be. Teach us to temper our impatience, to retain our conviction that what we do makes a difference, that even our smallest act can contribute to the good of a greater whole. Be with me in my uncertainties. Rejoice with my small triumphs. Comfort my losses. Remind me that I'm never alone, not in my joys nor in my fears. In the blessing of our silence, may I feel your presence, something greater than I have yet been able to comprehend. And now as we enter the silence, please feel free to speak aloud the names of those you wish to remember. During the meditation, we called out the names of people we wanted to remember. So, the Celtic tradition says that at this time of year, the veil between the worlds is thin. The veil between the worlds of the living and the dead. In European tradition, they have All Saints Day on November the 1st and All Souls Day on November the 2nd. In the Aztec and Mexican tradition, there are the Dias de los Muertos, where you, you celebrate the Inocentes, the babies on November 1st, and then the rest of the people on the November 2nd. You, you remember and you party with those who were dead. Today we're listening to the Durafle Requiem, which is uh, part of a mass for the dead. This is the way that Christians speak about the beliefs around death and dying. You, in, the, in the Requiem Mass, you, you ask for forgiveness. You say, have mercy on me. 
you praise God with the hallelujah. Um, There are very specific parts of the Mass that are put together for a requiem for a person. So this is a good time of year to remember people who have gone before us. Do we want to be just like them? No. If we weren't being ourselves, then all their DNA, as our child said, that all, our, all their DNA that has poured into us to combine to make us unique would be um, a waste of effort. We have to be who we are. We have to be the best of us. Do we search our ancestry for clues to who we are? Of course. Many of us tell family stories. Some families tell family stories, some don't. Some families are all biologically related. Some have adopted from other cultures or other parts of the country. Sometimes we were not adopted but raised by people who took us in. Who are our ancestors? Sometimes we can choose them. Sometimes we have to research them. Uh, a man who wrote a genealogy, a history of his family, wrote this. Genealogy becomes a mania, an obsessive struggle to penetrate the past and snatch meaning from an infinity of names. At some point, the search becomes futile. There's nothing left to find, no meaning to be dredged out of old receipts, newspaper articles, letters, accounts of events that seemed so important 50 or 70 years ago. All that remains is the insane urge to keep looking. Insane because the searcher has no idea what he seeks. What will it be? A photograph, a will, a fragment of a letter? The only way to find out is to look at everything because it is so often when the searcher has gone far beyond the border of futility that he finds the object he never knew he was looking for. The author's name is Henry Weincheck. The book is called The Hairstons, An American Family in Black and White. Some people use Ancestry.com. Other people use the swab on your cheek that you send off. If you go to YouTube, you can see videos of people who are finding out that they always thought they were Italian, but now they know they're from Eastern Europe too. Or they always thought that they were 100% British, but now they find out (laughs) there's one pretty racist guy who was like, I'm 100% from England, and they found out he was also from Iceland, and and his racism kicked in about Iceland. (laughs) I've told you family stories before about my Uncle Bull, who was the storyteller of the family, um, about other people in that southern part of the family, Aunt Mabel, who was the matriarch, my mother, who was the black sheep, a little bit. You didn't have to do much to be the black sheep in that family. <laughs> but this morning, I want to start by telling you about another ancestor on my father's side, and then I want to talk about our Unitarian and Universalist ancestors. Because we're looking for ancestors to give us clues about who we are, and not really just clues about who we are, but models to follow, who, who can be our guides and And who can help us figure out what possibilities for a path of life there are? How did they they do old age? How did they do middle age? How did they do school? How did they do farming? How did they do it? What did they do? Are there ideas in there for us? 
Well, my grandfather, who was a famous preacher in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s in the U.S., I, during my research I found whole websites where you can still download podcasts of his sermons. So, anyway, uh, his sister, he has some sisters, and one was named Ruth Winyarita. Oh, no, this is not true. It doesn't matter. You don't care. Anyway, there were some sisters. <laughs> Sorry. This is on my grandmother's side, Ruth Winyarita. She, she married Donald the preacher. So Ruth had um, two siblings, a sister and a brother. Anyway, her older sister was named Mary Neoscalita Tiffany. And Ruth's name was Ruth Winyarita Tiffany. And her little brother was named Toby, but he did not have an Indian middle name. And nobody in the family knows why they named their daughters with Indian middle names. There was a tribe up there where they were in Huntington, Pennsylvania, called the Neoscalita tribe. So who knows? Maybe they were related. We don't, we don't know. It was not something people talked about in those days. Because why? Because racism. Okay. That's another sermon. So Ruth preferred Ruth and didn't use Winyarita, but Mary Neoscalita didn't like Mary. She thought it was dull, and so she was known as Neoscalita her whole life. Neosk was what the whole family called her. And so when Neosk was in high school, she said to the principal that she was going to be a doctor, and he said, and she was born in 1890, okay, so we're talking about 1905 maybe. Um, She said to the principal, I'm going to be a doctor. And he said, <laughs> maybe you could be a nurse, but girls are not doctors. She went away to college, went to medical school, <laughs> became a doctor, rode back into town, Huntington, Pennsylvania, on a motorcycle. <laughs> now, she had a childhood illness where all of her hair fell out and then came back flaming red. So... <laughs> Imagine this young woman, flaming red hair, on a motorcycle. She rides up to the high school, goes in, smacks her diploma down on the principal's desk. She, um, she moved to Bahrain so she could be a doctor. And met a man from Standard Oil Company, and they got married And the story in the family is that one day, uh, a a group of five or six men with swords came on horseback to their house and called for the lady doctor and said, come with us. The sheik has a favorite wife who's in childbirth and not doing well, and he will not allow a male doctor to look at her. And he heard that there was a female doctor, so they rode for hours across the desert, is the family story. She met the sheik who said, my favorite wife is in difficulty if you save her and the baby, and if the baby's a boy, you get this much money. And if you save her and there's a baby and the baby's a girl, you get this much money. But if she dies, you have to find your way home alone, and you don't get any money. So the story goes, she saved the wife, who had a son, and um, she got from the sheik a bag of gold and jewels and, and all the rest of her life, she would parcel out these jewels to her children and her grandchildren. And one of the people in the family still has a double pearl from the, from the sheik. 
But my grandmother was the other sister. who married the minister and did not get a bag of pearls, but that's okay. We had many other kinds of riches. So I am going to find out more about Neascalita, and I'm going to invite her to my inner committee. Do you have an inner committee that sits around a table in your head? Some of those people can be ancestors, I guess, and so Neascalita's going on there until I find out otherwise. And if I do color my hair red at some point, it will be in honor of her. And this morning I wanted to tell you some stories about our Unitarian and Universalist ancestors because the two denominations didn't come together until 1961. The first is a Universalist preacher named Hosea Ballou. And he was a man who had a wonderful sense of humor, I think. You can still read his treatises if you go online. My favorite family story about Hosea Ballou is when he was sharing a carriage with a minister of another denomination. And the minister of the other denomination said, Are you, you are that Hosea Ballou, the universalist preacher? He said, Sir, I am. He said, So you don't believe in hell at all? No, sir. I don't. Well, what if somebody is, what if somebody is just a terrible person? Would they go to hell? No, sir. There isn't any hell. What if somebody, what if somebody damaged you and your family? What if they did something terrible to you? Can you imagine a place in hell for them? No, sir. I cannot imagine it because I do not believe in hell. He said, "Do you mean to tell me, if I were a universalist, I could?" I could hit you over the head and the driver, steal this whole carriage and everything in it, and I would not go to hell? And Hosea Ballou says, Sir, if you were a universalist, that thought would never have occurred to you. (laughs) You can find uh, more stories on your own if you want, but I'm going to just tell you one more. A man came to Hosea Ballou, very concerned about his son's eternal soul. Thought he might go to hell because he was in the bar all the time. As we say today, he was making bad choices. (laughs) And Ballou said, yes, sir, I will talk to him. Let us go to, to the bar where he is. And let us build a giant fire right next to the bar. And we'll drag him out of the bar and throw him in the fire. And the father was shocked. And he said, what? Why would I do that to my own son? And Baloo said, right. Are you a better father than God? I think that just sums it up. Yeah. Now I want to tell you about uh, Theodore Parker, a, a transcendentalist Unitarian minister. Theodore Parker preached in several different churches. He never had any children. He has a, in his portrait, he has such a wonderful, peaceful look on his face. I'm not calling that there's a, that there's a connection between not having any children and having a peaceful look, but um, he did, he did let all the children in his congregation play in his office and they apparently loved climbing all over him and, um, I can't remember what they called him, but it was something very affectionate. Anyway, Theodore Parker was an abolitionist, a fiery abolitionist. 
And abolitionists in Boston at that time where he was preaching were not popular because they were obnoxious, because all they could talk about was the institution of slavery and how terrible it was. And it was dull at dinner parties for them to hammer on and on. I can't believe we're having this lovely dinner party where there are people being owned in the South. Anyway, you get the picture. But then another Unitarian forebear of ours, President Millard Fillmore, signed into law the Fugitive Slave Act, which made it against the law to help slaves, men and women who were escaping from slavery. It made it against the law for you not to turn in an escaped man or woman who was escaping from slavery if you knew about them. This was not popular in Boston. And suddenly the abolitionists were listened to. It upped the ante. Because you could get thrown in jail now for not helping the slave catchers. And there were people whose job it was to travel north and kidnap men and women who had escaped from the South and return them to the South. It was seen as stealing to steal your very valuable self from someone who felt he owned you. Millard Fillmore signed the Fugitive Slave Act, even though he was against slavery, even though he was a Unitarian and held Unitarian values. He felt that he needed to compromise his values in order to keep the Union together. And maybe he had a point. Who knows? Sometimes some of our ancestors do heinous things for reasons they think are good. So, Theodore Parker wrote a letter to President Fillmore, and he said, There hangs in my study the gun my grandfather fought with at the Battle of Lexington, and also the musket he captured from a British soldier on that day. If I would not peril my property, my liberty, nay, my life, to keep my parishioners out of slavery, then I should throw away these trophies, and I should think I was the son of some coward and not a brave man's child. He founded the Boston Vigilance Committee, and the Boston Vigilance Committee had both black folks and white folks on it, and their mission was to interfere with the slave catchers. So they would follow them around, and they would make themselves obnoxious to the slave catchers. They would get in their way when they were trying to sneak up on somebody. They would not allow them to capture folks. And many slave catchers returned to the South frustrated and unpaid because of the Boston Vigilance Committee. I'm going to tell you about Margaret Fuller now. She was a member of the Transcendentalist Group in Massachusetts. She was born to a Unitarian family. And she was, after her sister died um, as an infant, she was the only child. Her parents poured their energies into her. She was educated in Latin, in Greek, in history, in mathematics, philosophy, literature. 
She was a beast, and she was gorgeous. She led conversations at the women's bookstore, a bookstore run by the Peabody Sisters uh, in Boston, because women weren't allowed to speak in public at that time, so they led conversations. So she was leading conversations on women's suffrage, and she was leading conversations on sexuality, and she was leading conversations on literature, and Margaret Fuller was a favorite conversational partner for Ralph Waldo Emerson. He adored conversation with her. She would stand up to him. She knew what she was talking about. She wasn't in awe of him. In fact, we think he might have had a big crush on her. His wife took to her bed whenever Margaret Fuller came to visit their house. (laughs) Margaret Fuller eventually went to work for Horace Greeley at the New York Tribune, and he sent her overseas as one of the first female foreign correspondents. She was to go to London to report on the literary scene there. But she was fascinated by the revolution in Italy that was happening at the time. So she took it upon herself to travel to Italy and start reporting about the French bombardment of Rome and the Roman people suffering in the revolution. So she became uh, the first female war correspondent. Uh, Most times war correspondents were officers in the army. They were soldiers who would write dispatches back. And so you'd hear about the frontline stuff, but you never heard the human interest stories about what was happening to the people who were being shot and starved and like that. So she wrote those, but in Italy, she married, uh, well, not really married. She just got together with a, um, she was a wild child. What can I say? (laughs) She got together with an Italian count and they had a baby and everyone in New England said, Margaret, do not come home with a love child. This is... This is the mid-1800s, honey. (laughs) And yet, she came home with her baby and her child. She tried to come home. Her life is like an opera. This, I'm just going to tell you how it ended. She's on a ship with her baby and the count. And they finally get to the U.S., And there's a huge storm, and the ship starts breaking apart really within 200 yards of the shoreline. There are people who come pouring out of their houses into the storm watching this ship, trying to figure out how to help, but nobody could figure out how to help. And so they see all the passengers on the deck, and Margaret Fuller with her baby is on the deck. And a sailor says, I think I can swim. I think I can save the child. And she hands him her baby, and he straps the baby to him. And he dives into the water and drowns immediately. And so she's just standing there on the deck with her dark hair whipping in the wind and her white nightgown whipping in the wind. And the ship is breaking apart. And she goes down with it. And the ship is breaking apart partially because there's a storm, and partially because of another Unitarian named John C. Calhoun, who was a pro-slavery Unitarian in South Carolina. And John C. Calhoun had commissioned a marble bust of himself, which was being transported in the ship from Italy. And so as the storm rocked the ship, the bust kept banging against the wooden hull of the ship. 
it broke apart. So I think Don Calhoun and slavery killed Margaret Fuller, but that's just me. Not exactly a conspiracy theory, but. So we are going to be ancestors ourselves as time moves on. What stories do you want them to tell about you? Look to your ancestors and the people you admire for guidance about how to handle the things that are things in life. How do you handle when you lose jobs? How do you handle when you lose people? How do you handle it when you have some power? What do you use it for? Do you, do you become a, a person who flouts the rules of society and ends up a little bit alone but very interesting? Or are you a person who conforms more to your community and has lots and lots of cushions and layers of community but uh, maybe sacrifices a little authenticity in the way? Can you have both? Maybe there's a way. Maybe you have an ancestor who found out how to do both. We can get our guidance from the lives of those who have gone before us. And I like the lives of those who have gone before us because they are real lives. They're complicated lives. These are people with flaws, as we are. I'll just speak for myself. Maybe I preach because that's who I am. And maybe I preach because I come from long, long lines of preachers on both sides of the family. Maybe I can be fierce and have red hair at some point. I promised my children long ago when they were small, when they asked me, please, Mama, don't get a motorcycle. <laughs> I said, I promise. <laughs> so I can't get a motorcycle. I don't want to be a doctor. But I do want a little of her spirit to strengthen me in days to come. Who do you want to be like? Will you say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Please sing with me if you care to. Bright morning stars are rising. Bright morning stars are rising. Bright morning stars are rising. Day is a breaking in my soul. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.